Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 170 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we boldly went forth and explored the brand new universe of bots. In this episode, we stay much closer to home and discuss whether a truly fresh approach to email management might make our daily email lives a little bit more healthy than it is now. Tom, what's in our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be discussing something we're calling email hygiene, whether that is a, a good or a bad term for what we're going to be discussing. We, we know we might not succeed in making this term part of your everyday vocabulary, but we are hoping that we can make email hygiene concepts part of your daily approach to email and technology in general. In our second segment, we ponder what to do with all of our old adapters, cords, plugs, connectors, and other electronic flotsam and jetsam. And as usual, we will end up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's talk about the concept of email hygiene. You're going to hear in a minute why Dennis has left it for me to define the term, but I'm going to try uh, to give a definition, and I think it's partly because I gave a podcast and talked about it a, a couple of weeks ago. Um, all of you who are regular listeners should know that my day job involves records management, information governance, good records management practices, and that really includes email. And, and part of what I do all day is help companies manage the volume of email better. Although I think most of the principles that I deal with deal more with apply more to big companies, um, and it doesn't really match up with those of you who have solo or small firm practices. Um, there's still some good ways and some good kind of guiding principles that lawyers can use to keep their email clean or at least cleaner, and thus email hygiene. Dennis, why don't you tell our listeners what got you so into taking on this topic? Well, it was uh, the podcast you mentioned. So you were on the Lawyers Podcast with Sam Glover, and you were talking about good records management and making, I, I think, one of the points that you just made about how a lot of things you did for big companies uh, might not apply to solo and small firm setting. And, th and then you gave like a great set of examples of some really practical things I thought would, would really help me out. And... And so I thought, hey, this could be a really worthwhile topic because I think you talked about it on the podcast for maybe a minute or two. I thought maybe we could extend that. So there were some really interesting ideas that you had. And it also it reflects something that I always like when I think about legal technology, which is I like to turn things around and try to see how they might work in a different context. And so for a long time, I've always had, uh, you know, I've had this notion that if we took uh, some of the e-discovery tools we had and the principles we used in e-discovery and we turned them on ourselves that we could uh, do some cool things with knowledge management and, you know, cleaning up how we do things and, and just have better approaches in general. So email hygiene falls into that category. But I think what you touched on that was truly interesting to me was just this really very practical approach to 
something, especially in the case of email retention policies, just seems like such a big burden. But maybe having email retention policies really is a, can be turned into a positive for all of us. Well, I think it can. And, and, and maybe let's, let me start by stating the value proposition for this whole thing. And, and I'm going to talk strictly in terms of, of records management principles and how records need to be managed in terms of best practices. I, I think that with email, it all comes down to whether or not you consider email to contain a business record. Are they records that, one, concern the work that you do as a lawyer, and two, that they need to be kept for a certain period of time. Now, most firms don't have things like record retention schedules, but you probably should at least have a good idea how long your records need to be kept. And, and just saying, well, I'm going to keep everything forever, that's not quite right, because the fundamental and guiding principle of good records management is to keep the right amount of information the right period of time. And there are a lot of companies who take the position that... Um, that email is not anything more than a business communication, that there's no actual business records there. But Dennis, you and I, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast know that that's not true, that there's lots of emails that we have that need to stay in email, that they constitute business records, and we need to keep them there. But if you don't have a policy for managing those emails the same way that you manage your client files, uh, your financial records, your human resource documents, your personnel files, those types of things, if you don't have a policy for managing it, then you can run into a bunch of problems. And for me, they usually come into three different areas. The first one, and the most obvious one, is productivity. From a personal standpoint, the more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to search through. And we're going to talk a little bit about how, at least for some of us, search doesn't work as well as we want it to. Um, The second driver and the second problem that people can have for not getting better control over email is risk. If you keep that email forever, if you get sued for malpractice or grievance or some other reason, there's going to be an argument that a lot of that really old stuff is relevant and it's got to be produced. At the very least, it's got to be reviewed by somebody and that can lead to really the third problem, which is cost. Now, you may store stuff on a server and storage is cheap or at least it's cheaper these days, um, but the cost may come to hire a lawyer to go through all that email or the cost might be to hire an e-discovery company or another vendor to come in and get all that information off of your server because there's so much of that stuff on it. And so when we look at all of those together, your productivity, the risk that you run by having all that stuff for longer than you should, and the cost that it can lead to, um, then that really starts to make the argument for how do we keep this stuff clean and keep it the same way that we're keeping the rest of our records. And it seems like there's another of those areas where the fact that you think you don't have a policy or a procedure isn't really the case because there is something that you're doing. Um, and I, right. I, I realize this that I, you know, you had this sort of idea in your head, um, and I was just looking through a bunch of file cabinets in the basement, and I see all these financial records, and I go, and, and you and I were just talking about this too in another context, Tom, but I go like, oh yeah, tax returns, that's one thing, I keep them for some period of time, and you know, some other things like related to the house, it'd be good to keep those, but basically, I just have, you know, like these big Redwell type things for for different years. And then, then you have stuff that's utility bills and all this other stuff. And you're going like, okay, I know that no matter what, I'm not going to need to produce those utility bills for anything. They're just taking up space. And then more and more, I'm turning to saying, okay, uh, it's not me so much as my wife is saying, like, why are we even going to paper anything anymore? Shouldn't all be like electronic? So I think that if we don't surface those actual 
retention policies. We sort of have them personally, professionally, business and otherwise. And so going through the exercise of doing some sort of analysis and standardizing the approach can help you across the board, personally or in in terms of business. And even more so, I mean, at least those paper records that you're keeping, at one point in time, someone took the care and the effort to put those documents together and that they have some sort of business value. With electronic records these days, just go into your email and see how much of it actually has business value to you. I mean, the fact that I see lots of people who have email that just say, thanks for sending me that document, or they save emails that say, meet you down in the cafeteria at two o'clock. Just because it's a place now where we have such informal conversations, there are so many records there that that are different from those paper records. At least the paper records had some value to them, and there's so many things out there that don't. We we like to think of, I I call them non-records, the types of things that we see in email and other places that are like convenience copies. You get a copy of something, but do you really need to keep that copy? A lot of people keep drafts of documents in email email where you're saving the drafts someplace else. And whether you've got to keep the drafts in the first place is another question. But the fact that you're saving drafts in email really is kind of amazing. And then and then finally you get, you know, you get an email asking you a question about something and you talk back and forth and, and you arrive at an answer. It's not really related to business. You're maybe helping someone out, giving them some answers about here's what I learned and here's what judge so-and-so does. Do you really need to keep that string of information? Um, it doesn't really have the business value to you, but because it's in email and and we've all kind of, you know, the way I like to describe a tool like Outlook is it's it, Microsoft has kind of positioned it like crack. They've got us all addicted to it and it becomes our file cabinet. It becomes the place where we store everything and we, we want to go back because it's easy, or at least easier, to search than other places. And um, it it just becomes something that we rely on. And I think that it becomes even worse than the paper because there's so much stuff in there that we don't know that we don't need because we just kind of let it all pile up. Right. And it just does feel like this gigantic pile. And I, I sort of feel that the flip side of that is also important because email does have tons of attachments and other things that can be important and they get really confused. And I, I, you know, it seems like more often than I would like somebody is saying like, oh, wait, uh, the draft I sent you was actually from three versions ago or was the last one or you need to go back to the, the attachment, uh, the draft that was the attachment last Thursday, you have the one from last Tuesday um, because everything escapes out of document management systems and whatever else you do into email and so that it's becomes tricky because the good stuff becomes harder to find and it just feels like you're always in email trying to come up with something. So I, I was just kind of jotting down a list of the things that I find as email issues that sort of fall into the, the records management category for me. And you know, duplications, uh, you know, scattered threads, finding attachments you need, seeing where somebody was, you know, figuring out when somebody was added to a conversation, whether somebody had, you know, knew that they were being asked to weigh on something, all the people who say they didn't get emails. And it just seems like there's this like, I just feel sometimes days like I'm, you know, a miner in the, in the, <laughs> in the Outlook coal mines. I mean, you know, that uh, it is, and that's, that's what I think that uh, your podcast led to was, was some good ideas, but I sort of feel like I'm just, 
touching on on some of the issues that, that people can find in email. So I don't know. Is that a decent list I put together, Tom, or are there some big ones I'm missing? No, I think that's a decent list. I mean, like when you add it to the other stuff I'm talking about, I think what it comes down to is there's just a lot of stuff that we keep in email that we shouldn't or we don't need to. And you, you talk about attachments. Uh, one of the things that we talk about with companies is, is do you really need to keep that attachment in email or can it be someplace else? Because there's better places to put it. There's better places with better search tools than email and places that can hold that information in a better way. And when I what I mean by better is in compliance or in accordance with a record retention policy. And, and what we usually find and what makes email so hard is that if you're going to actually try to live up to a true retention schedule, I need to keep, you know, for example, we'll say finance records. Your law firm's finance records, the general best practice is that you keep those for seven years. Um, if you've got a finance record that's in email, most people, most solo and small firms, the only real way to get rid of that is to go in and find it and delete it manually. And, and we typically try to recommend that companies don't do it manually, that they try to find an automatic way to do it because if you, we rely on individuals to do it manually, then one of two things, actually, it's not going to happen because one, lawyers and anybody really, you've got a day job, you're too busy, you don't have time to go in and start cleaning out your mail. But two, if we get right down to it, most people really don't want to get rid of this stuff. And so the duplications and the scattered threads, they just kind of pile up because we really kind of rely on it. We kind of hope that it's back there because it's the, how did we do it last time? Or I need to go back to, you know, there's a little bit of a CYA action in there too. And I want to go and make sure that I can cover what I said before and prove to somebody that's what's going on. And so that's kind of what leads us to those problems is we don't really want to solve the problem, which makes it even harder. Well, and I, I think traditionally, I would think that Search is the solution, right? So you go, hey, email's another place where there's a big mess of data. So I just search for stuff and that gives me what I need. And that's where, again, using Outlook as my example, but I've seen the same thing in Gmail and, and elsewhere is that you think, oh, I can just find this stuff really easy. And I'll give you a couple examples where it just doesn't work. There's a thread where you, you're trying to remember the name of somebody and you, you can't, or that person's name is misspelled by somebody somewhere along the line. People refer to a project by a different name or misspell the name of a company. When I was uh, teaching my law school class, I tried to get the students to do like a standard approach with subject lines and things like that. But in almost every case, to run a search that says assignment seven, you know, which is what I hope they would put in the subject line, <laughs> you know, didn't necessarily get everything. And then I was typically, I mean, I had 17 students and typically I would get 15 or 16 of the emails all kind of bunched together so I could pull the attachments off of it and grade the papers. But there would always be one that I was looking for. And sometimes somebody would turn to, you know, get into the spam filter. And then there are times when I know there's an email out there, they're like, yeah, the classic situation. I know there's an email and it should have this word in it. And I do a search and I can't find it. And then accidentally I find it at some later point because I say, I don't know, I guess the email got deleted or whatever. So I, I think that search really felt that it was failing for me. And I, I guess I want to now serve it up to you, Tom, to say what you had some really interesting suggestions about using folders and rules and all those things that we've talked about over the years. But I think in, in really 
really helpful ways. And I and so I kind of want to turn things over to you to kind of start digging into into some of those practical ideas that you had. Well, there's a couple of ideas that I can mention here. I, I think that, you know, when you talk about the frustration with search, I think that one of the first questions that we ask people is what your email style is, because Outlook or any real email tool is still so innately personal. It's something that people still make their own, and everyone has their own different approach to email, which makes it, again, harder to find common solutions to it. But the way we break it down is to say, are you a filer or are you a piler? That's the really way that we break it down is that there's some people who like to be very organized and put things into files, folders, and they know they have a folder for every single thing, and they've got folders within folders, and sometimes that can lead to other problems. But then there's some people who they don't believe in the folder system at all, and they just leave an inbox, and they've got 20,000 emails in their inbox, and they either search using search terms like you mentioned. I know that a lot of companies and a lot of employees actually find it is easier for them to just do filtering in Outlook by filtering by the person's name or filtering by the time and when it was sent, by filtering by whether it has an attachment or not, whether it's a large file. I know that Outlook has the smart search feature where you can go in and you can set a, a regular search that you can then save. I have a very basic search that I've got in my Outlook to find emails that are older than three years old. So I can go back and look at emails that are older and delete them if I no longer need them. The challenge, like I mentioned before, is that a manual approach to deleting email doesn't typically work because you're just not going to do it. So the automatic approach is better, but the problem is, is that to have an automatic approach to deleting your email, you have to have the right technology to do it. And a lot of solo and small firms won't have that. One of the examples that I mentioned on the podcast was something that we see now with Office 365. So if you're using Office 365, and, and I will apologize in advance, I don't know whether the, the basic subscription offers the same functionality that a more enterprise level or a business subscription will offer, but the administrative console of Office 365 for email will allow you to go in and set retention periods for certain types of emails. So for example, you could get an email and when you see that that email involves a particular piece of litigation, you could have a pull down menu in your email and there would be a, a number of different record types. So one, you could click for finance records and one could be personnel records and one could be litigation. And when you click on one of those pull-down menus, it automatically assigns a retention period to that message. So you've decided that litigation um, is going to have a retention period of 10 years after the date that the case is closed. Now, you've got to go back in and tell email that, oh, by the way, the Smith case closed so that the 10 years can start to run at that point in time. But Outlook does provide very basic tools so that you can categorize email by its record type and how long that record needs to be kept. And it can actually delete those emails when they reach the end of their seven years or 10 years or whatever the retention period happens to be on them. And we find that that tends to be a better way of managing retention than relying on people to do certain things like that. And so that's that to me is one of the easiest ways of dealing with it is to either tag it with something. We also, we also like the idea of 
creating a tag for what we call working documents. So there are lots of emails that you keep that you know you're not going to need to keep as long as you keep your litigation files or that you keep other records of transactions for clients that you're going to keep longer periods of time. These are the, the emails that I've been discussing and Dennis has been discussing in this podcast that just don't have that long a period of time. You can actually create a category for them called working documents that has maybe a two-year period. You know you're going to need them for a while, but maybe two Two years is a long enough period of time, and you can classify them by that period of time, and that stuff starts to clear out on its own without you having to worry about it. Now, that said, I'm not sure if the most basic versions of Office 365 have the functionality, but I do know that enterprise versions do, and there's something that you can uh, have IT set up with. I wouldn't say it's very simple to set up, but it's also not incredibly complex to set up either. It's kind of something that's standard that Microsoft has been working on for a long period of time. So that's one of my better examples. Dennis, I don't know if you had any thoughts about that or any other ideas about about good email hygiene. Well, I love the filters thing for certain things, especially, you know, finding the, looking at the big emails, like if you run into inbox storage space issues, to be able to pull those things, to search for attachments can be helpful, to search, you know, certain date frames, uh, and, and just to be able to look through all that. What I'd sort of like to ask Tom is to use my... Uh, teaching my law school class question. So I teach this intellectual property licensing and drafting class. We have eight written assignments where people do drafts of different types of legal documents. So 17 people in the class. So every couple of weeks, I'm going to get uh, 17 people emailing me an attachment with their assignment. So that's a fairly small set of information and a set of emails. But when you think about it, talk about some of the things that you just did. So it could be filters, or it could be saved searches, or it could be tagging, there could be some other things. What are the sorts of things that our listeners might not be thinking of in that sort of, you know, repeating scenario that could be really helpful to them using those elements in Outlook or Gmail that we don't think too much about? on a regular basis. Well, the one that comes to mind the quickest is just the idea of setting up rules for those emails. And I think that if I use your example um, to think this through, the first thing that I want to do is I want I want to make sure that the students have a common naming convention for what they put in the subject line, uh, or at least have some terms that are common in the subject line, even if people are going to say it slightly differently. And then, frankly, what I would do in that situation, if I wanted to keep better control over it, is to set up rules within Outlook, within Gmail, within whatever system you're using, so that it's looking for the terms in that subject line, or even in the body of the email itself. There are rules that you can set up to look at the text that come in in attachments as well. But set up a rule that will automatically see that assignment come in and will know that that assignment is from your students based on the criteria that you've given it and have it file it in a particular folder. And it will automatically go to that folder so you've already filed it in a way that is easy to find. It's not in your inbox anymore. You don't have to go search for it. And it's gone in there. Now that relies on your students putting at least some of the right words in. Or you can even set up a folder that just looks for email from those students. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it could go by email address and could come in there. And then you don't have to even rely on the students to get the right terminology. So that's just one idea. that, And I think that's something that lawyers have been doing for a while is setting up rules. And it's a, a fairly straightforward way to easily organize your email. 
And then, so if I do the rules approach, and, and I agree with you, that that could be interesting, especially where you say, if I can identify, my rule says if it's one of these 17 emails, then certain things happen. It goes into a folder that's easy for me to work with. If I have that rule, and I've noticed that in Gmail, and this surprised me of a week or so ago, is that the, the spam filter has become super aggressive. And I could go for months and not see anything that I felt that I missed. But there were like normal email newsletters and things like that that it was pulling out that surprised me. And I had a couple of student assignments that also showed up in the in spam when I couldn't find them. So if I have that rule in the spam filter, is that going to grab it? before the rule do you have any or is that something i need to investigate well, well, let me, well but let me ask let me ask real quick is the is the emails from your students going into spam as a what you think is a result of the rule or are you saying how will a rule change that what i'm saying is if google decides that because they just put a few words in that says professor here is assignment six and they have their name, and then yep. there's a big attachment. So Google says, oh, that has the indicia of spam. And so it throws it into the spam folder so I never see it. And I then I email the student and say, like, hey, I didn't get your assignment. And then I look, and it's in that spam folder that I would never look at. If I had that rule in place that was looking for their email address, would that solve the problem of Google treating it as spam or would the spam well, filter knock it out before it got to the rule? Well, so I, I think there's two answers to that. The first is is that I think the spam filter is going to process first no matter what because it doesn't want spam getting into your inbox whether it's in a f separate rule or a separate folder or something like that. So I think the spam filter is going to work first. So I think that the answer is rather than creating a rule to try and get around it, whitelist those email addresses and you can do that within Gmail. You can go and add those email addresses to a whitelist so that the spam filter knows let this pass through no matter what's in it. So it's not going to read that content and it will let those emails come through. So that's probably how I would handle that if spam filters are the issue to think about. Okay. And then the other, other thing before we wrap up is that it also seems like there could be a notion that I'm, because I'm definitely a a piler rather than a filer. So the idea of saying, if there was an easy way for me to tag these emails as my class, you know, it was just like, I just hit, you know, clicked on something and said, this is tagged as my class. Is that, that's also another option. It's more manual, right? But I could sort of, as something came in, I saw it, I could just tag it the same way. Because what I typically would do is star it in Gmail and then it showed up in the starred items folder and that made it a little e easier for me to sort. But I think I could do an actual tag that said, this is my class. There's a couple of ways to do that. So you could in Gmail set up tags for class. I mean, that's I have tags set up for a bunch of different things in Gmail, and it's just a matter of using a pull-down menu to tag those emails the same way that I discussed it for Outlook. So that's one way of doing it. Another way is you're starring it. There's actually, if you'll notice, there's a bunch of different stars available in different colors and I think different shapes as well. So you could actually decide that um, all of your class email is a blue star rather than a gold star. You can do it that way. It creates sort of a different kind of a tag, but you don't have to think if you're starring everything with a gold star because it's important to you. There's actually a couple of different stars that Gmail has that's available that you could do it, you could create a, you know, a, a surrogate tag for those types of things. 
And that's another case where I think you have to know your personality because when you said, oh, I can do these different colors, I, I, my thought is, yeah, that would mean that will never happen. So uh, <laughs> the, uh, so, so, so I, I think uh, when you start to explore these, and that's why I thought why this topic was interesting to me was that there are these tools out there that in they make sense in the records management space, but it, it seems like we can pull them back into how we do things personally. And they're, they're actually fairly sophisticated and things that you can use and you may find something that really helps you out a lot and then if you you have to do the manual type of records management approach i think some of these things can really help you too like if you can filter things by certain dates and you know you have to delete everything older than you know x months if you could show everything that's you know in the month or two before you need to make that decision and you can look at all that stuff and then you can sort it real fast because you have everything in one place. So I, I can see a number of things that that this can also help you with in the manual records retention area. And then to me, what's intriguing is just, like you said, that point number one is can I use these things to be more productive and more efficient in the way I use email? And so I, I think there's some good ideas there, Tom. Yeah, and the one last tool before we move on to the next segment, the one last thing I'd recommend is there's a lot of cool mail apps that are coming out for both iOS and Android that people are using because they're thinking, well, email is broken. I need to have a better way of dealing with it. And and although I would disagree that email is broken, I think that we are the reason why email is broken to a certain extent. But there's some apps that are make it fun and easier to manage email. And I would start really with the Outlook app for iOS iOS and Android, I would say that that is, I think, one of the best email apps. I can set up a view to where only I see my unread emails that come in. I don't have to worry about going through emails that I've kept in my inbox that are read. I can see that. I can filter it by attachments only. So I can actually do some basic filters in the apps. And I can also very easily swipe left or swipe right to take care of my email. I, I, there's a couple of different options. I've got mine, my swipes. If I swipe left, then I'm deleting the email. If I swipe right, then I'm marking it as read and it stays in my inbox. And so it's taking kind of the Tinder approach to email. But it's very effective effective at me getting through my inbox very quickly. So go take a look at some of these apps that are out there. Mailbox is one, Inbox is one. There are a number for iOS. Um, I'll try to include some of them in the show notes, but it's another good option for managing your email better. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Between trying to pack for a long trip and doing some serious spring cleaning, uh, I've started to think about all of the electronics, cords, adapters, other flotsam and jetsam, as uh, Tom said earlier, that we accumulate over the years, especially many years. 
I mean, look, I really admire the people who tell me that they diligently label each corded adapter as soon as they get them and they organize them so they can put their hands on them whenever they want. But I basically don't believe a, a word of what they claim. I find that I try my best and I end up with all kinds of things that I can't find when I want them. And the result is I usually end up buying like a new cord adapter or whatever rather than looking around them forever. In fact, I have a general rule if I can't find what I need about 20 minutes, I just go right to Amazon and, and buy a new one. However, when I was cleaning out my garage and basement, uh, the shocking amount of stuff I found led me to ask, what the heck should you do with all this stuff? And are there good ways to get rid of the old junk? Tom, I know there are services like Gazelle for selling old computers and devices, but what do you do about all these cords, adapters, and other things? So I uh, two responses. The first is I have no idea. I have no I don't have a good answer for this. I, I have some answers, but I don't know that I have good answers to it. The second is is that I'm actually one of those people, Dennis. I'm I don't do it exactly the way that you describe it, but when I get cords, if I'm using them, if they're actively used cords, then I have they have a place in my backpack and then I can always find I keep them in a bag in my backpack and they're easy to get to. If they're cords that I don't use or I don't plan on using for a while or I, I'm going to have to use at some point, I don't label the cords themselves. I put them in a baggie that's a, like a freezer bag, and then I use a, a Sharpie to write on the outside, here's what these cords are. That's the only way because I, I have spent too long going through my drawers going, what is this cord for? I have no idea what it is. And if I can't identify it, then there's no reason to keep it. And so I wind up throwing it out. So I actually, if you go into my drawer, I have bags and bags of cords in there. I try to go through them maybe once a year, twice a year, and I look at them, and if I don't recognize the cord or if I've gotten rid of the device, then that baggie gets tossed out because I really don't have a good answer what to do otherwise. I'm not the kind of person who's going to keep up and gather up all my cords and take them somewhere, but that doesn't mean that there aren't places for that. I mean, if you go out and look on the internet, there are nonprofits that do gather equipment. They're probably more looking for electronics than cords, but who knows? There might be some cords that people want to get because the older cords Cords like that may wear out. They may need things to operate legacy equipment that people have older devices that they need to still power or still use adapters for. Um, so look in your neighborhood. You know, Best Buy used to take donations like this. I'm not sure they do that on a regular basis anymore. But there are, I know, some nonprofits in certain cities. So check out where you are and see if they've got them. That's really my best advice. I tend to throw things out because I don't think anybody's going to want them. But uh, I may be wrong in that thing thinking. Dennis, what about you? Well, I find myself really wanting to believe you that there's this drawer of all these uh, labeled it freezer bags. It is absolutely bags. true. I'm looking <laughs> at the drawer right now. But I still suspect you're buying stuff at the last minute on Amazon because you can't find things that you want. Um, no. Okay. I want to believe you. So here's, here's what I found. So I have all this stuff and this was the revelation to me. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And my daughter says to me, um, Dad, Goodwill takes all these things. They're happy to take them. They never turn them down. So I, I think the thing is that you do reach a point where you go, hey, there's certain types of things that people just don't use anymore. You know, I mean, it's like you may have this adapter, but nobody uses this stuff. And so like I noticed all these old, uh, you know, iPod adapters that uh, – you know, it's just a different type of uh, 
connector now. And so I have I don't even have any of those devices anymore. So sometimes you can clear things out that way. But I think that you know, finding some place that's willing to take it is about the best you can do. And I, I do agree with you, Tom. I think that probably the freezer bag is the way to go in sorting things into like places. I also have a, a place that's a sort of stacking set of uh, drawers on my desk at home that I have. I keep things that are of the same family of adapter, and I, I do that. But, uh, I mean, the best thing is if you do, like you said, time if you travel or you're using a backpack, then you use the bags and you keep things together and they're always with you, or you can use one of these uh, grip-it things. I use that for certain adapters, but um, probably every now and then you just need to take it to a Goodwill or other drop-off place that's, that's willing to take them. This podcast is all about hygiene. Yes, it is. So now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use the second the podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So Google has a new keyboard app uh, that originally came out just for iOS. Amazing that it comes out for the iPhone before the Android, although I understand they're going to make it for the Android phone. It is called, very simply, Gboard. Get it? Keyboard? Gboard? Um, What makes this nice is, is it looks very similar to the iOS keyboard. You can use swipe features to swipe the words, so that's nice. You don't have to hunt and peck for all the letters. But what's nice is in the upper left-hand corner, there is a G that when you press on it, you get to search within Google from your keyboard. So if you're looking for an address for a place or you're looking for some information that you want to send somebody and you're sending a text message or an email for something, all you have to do is do the search within the keyboard. You can it, Google will give you a nicely formatted card that all you do is press on it. It inserts itself automatically into the email, into the text message, into whatever it is you're trying to type. It's uh, I think from all reports so far, it is a very, very interesting keyboard. If you're looking for a different way and a more efficient way to communicate, Gboard might be the option. It's available right now for iPhone, will be available soon for Android, and it's free. I like the idea. I wish Google gave me better results these days. Uh, Then it would be even more attractive to me, but I got a problem with the results I get on Google on common searches. So, But my parting shot is uh, something I noticed recently and that Alison Shields and I often talk about in connection with LinkedIn, and, and it's using LinkedIn for geographic searches. So I'm uh, going to go on a vacation trip, going to be in a number of cities, and I took a look at just filtered my LinkedIn connections by cities, and it was uh, it was striking to me. And and uh, uh, my daughter's going to be moving to Portland here to continue school, so I did the filter on Portland, and I had thirty three LinkedIn connections. I would have been if you asked me off the top of my head. There's no way I would have thought I had that many. And there are people who moved there and other things like that. But that means that when I go to Portland or another city. I can connect with people and reach out to them and see if somebody wants to go to breakfast or have lunch or, you know, just just get back in contact with them. And um, it's this notion of using the social media tools to make connections in the real world. And this is one of the simplest things. And I, I think it can give you some really interesting information about the people you know, how they might be connected. And then, like I said, if you're traveling, a, a great way to, to find some people that you might want to get together with while you're in town. 
So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes uh, or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.